Now, by way of recap, in last week's sermon passage, we read about Paul's fervent prayer life on behalf of the Colossian church. Paul, we would say in in modern language, he was a prayer warrior, but he didn't do it for show. He he did it because of the great love that he had for the the saints, for the churches. And so we we can count on the fact that just as he prayed for the Colossians, he was praying for the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the Galatians and so many others with whom he came into contact. He prayed. He prayed fervently. And he said that whenever he prayed for them, he always prayed with thanksgiving for them. Ever since he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ, he has regularly prayed for them. And in last week's passage, we read about his remarking on the love that they had. That he especially, especially singled out the love that they have for all of the saints. And he says that this came about as a result of the hope that had been laid up for them in heaven. And we saw how the love that they had for the saints, it's a fruit of the faith that comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. We saw last week that the hope that is being stored up in heaven for us, just as it was for them, it is the future resurrection and glory that we will experience. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead and glorified, so we will be raised from the dead and glorified. Our bodies will be resurrected and they will be made perfect. But we also saw that it isn't just something that waits for us at some far off distant time. So abstract, we barely even believe it if we stop to think about it for a moment. That there is a present, an already reality to the resurrection that we enjoy. Already we are enjoying the benefits of the resurrection life because already we have been raised with Jesus Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places. We are new people. A new creation. Because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we learned last week that that love is what remains. We learned that after faith has become sight, that after hope that has been laid up for us in heaven, it's realized when we enjoy those resurrection bodies that, that Christ has promised for us, that love will remain, that love is eternal, it never goes away. That we will enjoy a loving union and communion with Christ and with our fellow saints for all eternity future. We learned that love for all the saints right now is a mark of true faith in Jesus Christ. It's a fruit of true faith, just as it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this morning's passage, Paul goes a little further into the source, the origination point of faith, hope. And love. And so as we work our way through this sermon passage today, I would ask you to, to hold this thought uh, before you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who refuse to believe. But for those who trust in Jesus, it is the very power of God himself. I'll say it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to, the, to those who refuse to believe. But for those who trust in Jesus, it is the very power of God himself. The sermon has three parts. The first is the word of the truth. The second, God-given growth. And the third, a minister of Christ. Again, the word of truth, that's the first point of the sermon. The second, God-given growth. And the third, a minister of Christ. So let's look at the first part of the sermon this morning, the word of the truth. In the second half of verse 5, Paul writes, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, 
the gospel. He's continuing his thought from verses 4 and 5a. He's referring to the love that they have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And Paul is saying in part that the hope laid up for them is certain because it's promised in the word of the truth, the gospel. He's telling them you can be certain of this future bodily resurrection because just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the one in whom you hope, so you, your bodies will be raised from the dead. And and that word of the truth or, or truthful word is the good news. It's the gospel. Now, Paul, we need to understand, he's influenced in his use of the word gospel by such Old Testament passages as Isaiah 40, verse 9, where God calls Zion herald of good news. Did you know the gospels in the Old Testament? It's It's not as clear, certainly not as clear as the New Testament, but it's there. And Paul, as he writes about the gospel, as he writes about the ministers of the gospel, he is most certainly influenced by Old Testament passages such as Isaiah 40. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 60. The good news is found earlier in Isaiah 40. Beginning in verse 1, we read there, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Because Jerusalem, Zion, has received the good news, she is to become the herald of good news, as we see in verse 9. Now, the gospel in its most basic form is found here in those verses in, in the beginning of Isaiah 40. The gospel is the heraldic proclamation that our warfare with God is over and that our sins are pardoned. It's, it's a very basic explanation of what the gospel is or description of the of the gospel but you hear that description and you immediately realize that there's more to the gospel than just that because implied in the proclamation is that we're enemies with god if if warfare has now ended that means that we were we were fighting against god we were enemies of god we hated god so contained within the good news is the very bad news that we hated God and we were at war with Him. We were fighting against Him. But also the bad news, there's additional bad news that's contained in this. It's that we sinned against Him. Why else would we have uh, need that our, our iniquities to be pardoned? Now Isaiah 40 doesn't tell us the way that our sins come to be pardoned. Isaiah 40 doesn't tell us that our, the way that our warfare with God is, is ended. That comes later in Isaiah, specifically around Isaiah 53. But beginning in verse 3, we read this. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now what is that telling us in, in those verses there beginning at verse 3? Without being overly specific these verses tell us that Yahweh is coming these verses tell us that a highway needs to be prepared for Yahweh we understand from the New Testament Gospels that John the Baptist was the one who was being referred to there uh, there in Isaiah 40 that he's the one who made straight the paths for the coming of the Lord we need to be prepared And Isaiah 40 is telling the people there that when Yahweh comes, fleshy, physical eyes will be able to see Him. 
Now we know that this passage was prophesying the coming of Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. Physical eyes would be able to see him because he took on a physical body. Jesus, Yahweh saves, came in order to bring our warfare against God to an end, to cleanse us from our sins. He is the one who was being spoken about in Isaiah 40. This is the gospel to which Paul refers in verse 6. It's the truth, the truth, because it proclaims the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel in the flesh, and this gospel gives us hope. But this gospel also proclaims to us the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, because that's where Jesus is. So the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, when received by faith, saves us. The gospel saves us, but its power also transforms us over time, conforming us to the image of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, for not with words of eloquent wisdom, And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now there is certainly an aspect of our salvation that is completed, that is finished. The work that needed to be done in order to save us. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. That's at least in part what he was talking about. You can't work. You don't need to work your way into heaven. Christ has done it for you. But there's another aspect of our salvation that is ongoing. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 18, we are being saved right now. That's by the power of the gospel. Again, it's not by works that you, that you, that you do by your own hands. And the sign for Paul that the gospel has been effectively powerful in the Colossian church is the fruit that they are bearing. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, God-given growth. So speaking of the gospel, Paul writes in verse 6, This gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. There's a lot going on in this brief verse. Paul tells the Colossians that not only has the gospel come to them, but it has also come to the whole world. And just as it is bearing fruit in them, so it is bearing fruit in Christians the world over. Now, I think it's safe to say that we have a different conception of the world, a different cosmology than Paul had, probably. Our idea of the world, the whole world, and Paul's are likely dissimilar in many ways, but that doesn't make what Paul said then untrue. We can safely assume that by the whole world, Paul is referring to what was, at that time, the known world to him and to others, the Mediterranean world. But he probably could have guessed, apart from some special revelation from God, that the world was bigger than the Mediterranean world. But he could only speak of what was, at that time, known to him and known to others. And so at a basic level, Paul is letting the Colossians know that they're not alone. That the same gospel that's bearing fruit in them is bearing fruit all over. And this is a great encouragement to the, to the churches in that day. It helps to validate their faith. It's a great encouragement to churches, churches in this day. I mean, think about it. A missionary comes to you. You're in a remote location, very deep in the jungle. And a missionary comes to you and over many, many years 
You, you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You come to learn how to read, perhaps. You have a Bible translated into your own language. You begin to read the Bible. You get to Colossians 1. And you read about these other Christians who have the same kind of faith you have. It's encouraging. It validates your faith. But there's a deeper, a more profound theological level of which Paul speaks here. The language that Paul uses in verse 6 Believe it or not, it takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, to God's command to Adam in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God said to mankind, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Colossians 1, 6, Paul is making a a deliberate allusion to Genesis 1, 28. And he's saying that what Adam and Eve failed to do, God is now doing to the Colossians and the whole world over through the gospel. G.K. Beale writes, the point of the illusion is to indicate that the Colossian Christians have begun to participate in the new creation and have thus commenced to carry out the commission to Adam and Eve in a more effective way than it had ever been done in the Old Testament era. And so what has come to be known as the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 is for the Colossian Christians and for us being fulfilled through the Great Commission. Now this runs counter to what modern day dominionists think because they believe that the cultural mandate in its original unaltered form as given to Adam and Eve is very much still in effect and we must fulfill it. Now, in a sense, it hasn't changed. God commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth with God's people. However, what was originally supposed to happen through procreation in a sinless world now happens through the proclamation of the gospel in a sin-filled world. We are still filling the earth with God's people, but as, as Paul indicates, it's done through the heralds of God proclaiming the gospel of God so that the church will bear much fruit and increase spiritually and numerically. That's how, that's how the earth is subdued. Now, we believe in covenant children, right? We believe that God builds his church by babies being born into the church. And we love our covenant children. We love our babies. We love the little ones that, that run around after Sunday, even though we get a little nervous and they might knock somebody over. But we love them because we know that that's, that's the next generation. But that's not the only way and not necessarily the primary way that, that God builds his church. And even those little covenant children, they have to hear the gospel and receive it in faith. Even they have to receive it. The gospel shows its power by converting sinners who are outside of Christ into saints who are united to Christ. But it also shows its power through the fruits that the saints bear. Once again, Beale writes, Paul cannot think of true Christian faith, love, and hope apart from the fruitful works that each of these three attitudes produces in the genuine Christian, in the genuine Christian life. Works are not the basis of salvation, 
but are the telltale evidence that one has true faith, love, and hope. Without the marks of faith, love, and hope resulting in fruitful works, there would have been no thanksgiving. For Paul, the attitudes of faith, love, and hope are inextricably linked to works. Show me your faith, James wrote, and I will show you my works. Faith without works is dead. There is no fruit of faith. There is no true faith. Works are the fruit of faith. And so if the gospel is received by a person in faith, that person will inevitably produce the fruit of good works because the Spirit of Christ is at work in them. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are bearing much fruit. But you better be bearing much fruit. It's the evidence. Not the cause of salvation. It's the evidence of saving faith. Now, in the second half of verse 6, Paul makes clear that this is a universal truth. In other words, just as every church and every place bore fruit in keeping with repentance, so the Colossian Christians bore fruit, this fruit of faith, love, and hope. And this happened, Paul writes, since the very day that they heard the gospel and understood the grace of God and truth. Now, now Douglas Moo writes, he's a scholar, yes, kids, there is a Dr. Moo. And he writes the following about verse 6 in his commentary in Colossians. He says it's worth noting that, that Paul in this verse seeks to ground the Colossians spiritually by appealing both to the truth of the gospel and to its life-changing power. The gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, nor by its power in people, people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. The gospel is objectively true. And yet, there's a sense in which it's proven to be true when it bears the fruit in a Christian's life. We prove to the nations that we are true believers in Jesus Christ by the fruit that is produced in us by the gospel, by the power of the gospel. We show by the love that we have for all of the saints but not only for all of the saints, by the love that we have for our neighbors. The truth of the gospel. The power of the gospel. It's not an option. But it also helps to give us assurance, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save sinners of whom I am the uttermost, but I know that the gospel is true because of its power at work in my life. Some of you right now, now, you may not feel that power. You might be blind to it. The Holy Spirit often is working in the background. He, he's, he's the operating system in many ways. He's doing stuff in your life you may not realize. Your Christian brothers and sisters may see it. You may not be able to. You may not see, you may not sense for whatever reason his power at work in you. But if you believe, if you trust in Jesus Christ, He is at work in you. He's working. You can't see the, the seed 
under the top of the soil that has been planted and watered. You can't see it when it starts to grow. Not before it bursts forth from the earth. But once it does, you see it. And it grows up. And it begins to produce fruit. And that takes time, brothers and sisters. And there are seasons in our lives. There are things that we do that that hinder our fruit. There are things that are done to us that hinder our fruit. But trust that if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are bearing fruit. And let that give you assurance and peace and comfort. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, a minister of Christ. In verses 7 and 8, Paul transitions from talking about the gospel, the, the message, to the messenger. This messenger that God used to take the gospel, the good news, to the Colossian people. He writes in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul seeks to honor God, especially for the gospel of grace coming to the, to the Colossians. But he also seeks to honor the instrument God used, the faithful minister, Epaphras. Now, how many of you can remember the first person from whom you heard the gospel? Or perhaps maybe not the first person you heard, but the, the person who preached the gospel and you heard it and you, and you believed it. And your heart said, this is true. And as a result of that person preaching the gospel, you embraced faith in Christ. How many of you can remember that? Well, I, I do. The first time I can remember hearing the gospel at all, much less receiving it in faith, was when our stodgy kind of kind of very formal associate Reformed Presbyterian church, had a visiting evangelist who held special services in our stately, gorgeous sanctuary for a week. Basically, these were revival services in a Presbyterian church, so we had to call them special services. We call them revival. But it was very much revival services. I don't believe anyone in that church had ever had someone like Albert Long stand in their pulpit. And though his style was fairly unorthodox, especially for that particular church, he proclaimed the gospel in such a clear way that the Lord used it in my life and other people's lives. We hadn't heard the gospel ever, not to my knowledge. Early 1980s, grew up in that church, never to my memory ever heard the gospel. I hear it, and the Lord used it in my life. And I went forward at an altar call at a Presbyterian church. I got to thinking about him late last year. I hadn't thought about him in years. I started thinking about him, discovered that he passed away in October of 2020 at the age of 88. Albert Long's claim to fame was that he was a four-sport letterman at the, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was the Atlantic Coast Conference's only four-sport letterman. He lettered in baseball, basketball, football, and track, which if you think about that for a moment, it's astonishing that he was able to do such a thing. I will always be grateful for the way that he was used by God in my life to bring the gospel to a church that at that time in the early 1980s didn't believe that the preaching of the gospel was all that necessary, all that important. But somehow, in the providence of the Lord, probably because somebody just answered the phone and said, yeah, sure, whatever, come on, and didn't think about what it was actually going to be, Albert Long came in that church, and he had what he called a happening and he had, he had a Juilliard-trained organist who 
who played that pipe organ in a way that it had never been played and probably never has since. He had a, had a bodybuilder who, who did amazing feats of strength, ripped phone books in half, sort of in some... It, it, was, it was a little crazy. Um, but, but the Lord used it. He used it. And I'm grateful, and I will always be grateful, and I look forward to the day when I get to go be with the Lord in heaven. And after Christ has wiped the tears from my, my eyes, I can find this brother and thank him. Thank him for the word that he preached. Because he proclaimed salvation from sin and death and the punishment that we deserve. And I heard it. I heard it loud and clear. Now, Epaphras, he was the same for the Colossian Christians. And Paul is grateful for him too. Paul calls Epaphras our beloved fellow servant, which could also be translated as beloved fellow slave. He's a slave of Christ, just like me, Paul was saying. And Epaphras was used by God as an instrument for preaching the gospel to those Colossian Christians. Paul says that he is a faithful minister of Christ. Now, interestingly, the Greek word translated minister is the same word that's translated in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as deacon. Diakonos means servant, which is the most common translation, the way it's translated most of all in the New Testament. But in certain contexts, like in Colossians, it can mean minister. It refers to that special office. Minister is an office of service. It's an office of service. Ministers are slaves. They're slaves of Christ. They serve Christ's people. And so when Paul uses diakonos in the context of proclaiming the gospel, he's referring to a minister or a servant of the word. And he uses this very word about himself in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 and verse 25. He says, in reference to the gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister, a servant. The minister's primary role is to serve on a platter the word of God, and specifically the gospel, to believers and unbelievers alike. That's the minister's primary role. The gospel is to be faithfully proclaimed in the church so that sinners may be converted to Christ under its preaching, but also so that believers can be built up in their faith. You were saved by the gospel and you are being saved by the gospel. You don't ever outgrow your need for the gospel. I know we all like charming stories and and funny things, but, but you don't need a bunch of stories on a Sunday morning. You need God's word. You need the good news. Because this world is filled with such terrible news. You need the good news. And so ministers are called to serve Jesus Christ as they serve the good news about Jesus Christ to those in need. And when ministers forget this simple truth, we ministers, we lose our way. And we lead the church right along with us. And that's what happened to my church. It lost its way because the ministers lost this way because they forgot the gospel. They ended up preaching moralism, which is not the gospel. When we forget as ministers that our primary role is to proclaim the gospel and get, we get fixated on some other agenda, we are essentially treating the gospel as if we believe it as foolishness. And something else needs to be proclaimed in its place. 
Sometimes ministers get to a point in their lives when they become embarrassed by the gospel. The bad news that accompanies the gospel becomes a liability to them. Talk of sin. Talk of the need of salvation from its deadly effects. It falls by the wayside because we don't want people getting upset. We want people to like us. They won't like me if I talk about sin. If I talk about damnation. If I talk about hell. If I talk about God's wrath. They won't like me. Those are all parts of the gospel. Because there is no good news without the bad news. Paul said the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Anything other than the gospel that is being proclaimed from Christ's pulpits is not good news. Now, I'm going I'm to tread lightly here. I recognize I'm... I'm getting close to the edge of appropriateness, but a comedian years ago, as part of his routine, not a Christian, uh, a lot has happened. This was in the early 2000s. He had a bit. He was was a British comedian. Great accent. He had a bit about a priest who said this. I I looked it up. I looked up the exact quote on the internet. It's a joke. It didn't actually happen. But it's it's, it's highlighting the, the weirdness of the way that sermons were at that point and still are today. Today's sermon is taken from a magazine that I found in a hedge. This season's lipstick colors will be in the frosted pink area and nails to match. And this reminds me rather of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said this in a British accent, which made it a whole lot funnier. But he was mocking the way that it it appeared that, that some ministers came across what they were preaching from the pulpits. And it's well deserved mockery in many cases. The faithful minister is one who preaches the word of the truth, the gospel. And that is what Paul commends Epaphras for doing. He is grateful for Epaphras' service to the Lord and to the Colossians. He is also grateful that Epaphras told him about the Colossians, about their faith, that he reported back into Paul and said, hey, great news. There's good stuff going over there in Colossae. They're believing. They're trusting. They're bearing fruit. They're showing love to all the saints. And so Paul says in verse 8 that Epaphras has made known to Paul and to Timothy, those with him, the Colossians' love in the Spirit. He refers back, of course, to their love for all the saints that he mentioned in verse 4. And so more than anyone else, Paul is giving honor to God for fulfilling his promise that the preached gospel is effective in calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is giving honor to God for building up the faith of the saints as they walk through this fallen world. Paul understands the gospel is what does this. And so none of us, none of us, brothers and sisters, but ministers of the gospel especially ought to be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel poses some inconvenient truths to sinners. That we're really not as great as we think we are. But it also tells the glorious truth that God in the gospel of his son offers us a glorious salvation that is folly to those who are perishing, but that is the very power of God to those who believe. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.